Holy hell is it good to be hitting that record button again. This is Nightmare Now, the show about all things spooky, scary or horrible, both true and not so true. This time it's going to be true. And I am your well-rested host, Eric Byrne. Jesus, it's been like a month. And firstly, I'd like to apologize for the delay and clear some shit up real quick. Wedding stuff has grown ever more intense and from here on out it's looking like i will only be able to reliably put out a show every two weeks but this show is still young and we can experiment with the format and release schedule still so it's gonna be all right that being said after the wedding and honeymoon i am without a doubt heading back to weekly so that is gonna be through early november that we're gonna be every other week so keep that in mind as you're scheduling your listening parties and everything but with work the wedding and other assorted bits of insanity with my car and health issues and all kinds of other stuff that's going on um i want to be upfront about what's possible i know i've gone dark on social media a little bit my phone shit the bed after five plus years of valiant service so we are henceforth resuming operations as of today and i i really want to thank everybody that's actually reached out while i missed episodes or not missed but missed releases that really means a lot to me it lets me know that i'm not doing this for nothing and i i can't thank you enough so as especially to my lovely fiance, my awesome family, and all the folks taking the extra step to interact with me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all that bullshit. Um, huge shout out to Mike and Mateo from the Whatcast. I'll link to their awesome show in the in the show notes. They've helped get the word out on the socials pretty much from the start and hooked me up with some awesome stickers to boot. So give them a listen. Especially if you're caught up on Nightmare Now, they have a 400 episode something backlog and where I'm releasing every two weeks now until early November. Something else to listen to can't hurt. So with that quick apology and acknowledgement and without further ado, I'm sure everyone is chomping at the bit to find out what happened to Captain Pollard, first and second mates Owen Chase and Matthew Joy and all the other crew and cast of the Essex. So let's jump right the fuck into it. Yeehaw! So a quick recap from last week, and this is only last week to the people that are listening to this way in the future and listening to the shows back-to-back, but whatever. On week one, the Essex went out. It had a, you know, quick stumble, and obviously you can go back and listen to these to get the, the more detailed version. It sailed all along the coast of South America, eventually made it to the offshore ground, and was attacked by a 80-foot bull sperm whale, and the ship sank. And that's pretty much where we, we capped off episode one. Episode two was the sinking of the ship, and everyone kind of piling into the the whale boats salvaging what they could from the Essex, gathering supplies and leaving the wreck. They, of course, got attacked by more whales, which is kind of hilarious in a sick kind of way. They faced starvation and thirst. They brought about the complete genocide of a species of Galapagos tortoise. They lost each other and managed to regroup with gunshot into the air. And the ships managed to find each other in the night. Towards the end of the episode, they managed to spot land. So yeah, that was Henderson Island. 
and they thought they were on Ducey Island. That was what the bit was. After spending a week and the Christmas day of that year on the island, eating birds and crabs, taking what they could from a small spring of fresh water in the center of the island, they decided to leave because there was the slim chance of salvation and rescue headed towards South America, or they could die slowly on the island of starvation and face certain doom in a slow, agonizing way. Not that they weren't facing certain doom in a slow, agonizing way out on the sea, but some of them figured they'd take their chances. Most of them, actually. There was only three people that stayed behind on the island, and those were all off-islanders, so non Nantucket natives that were part of the crew of the Essex and they decided to stick together and stay on the island and you know take their chances trying to survive on birds and crab meat and do what they could about water and we'll get to them later in the episodes and we'll see what <laughs> we'll see how they did and lastly in the last episode those three that stayed on the island, they were staying there with a whole pack of desiccated skeletons that was determined that a whole group of people that had shipwrecked on Henderson Island before had died of thirst. I was going to say comfortably lined up together, but I'm certain it was very uncomfortable lining up with your crewmates and young children to just lie in a cave and die. So that certainly didn't help morale. And there's a little bit more about that in the last episode. So that brings us to today's show where everybody but those three decided to ship off for South America. All three of the whale boats, one piloted by the captain, Captain Pollard, one piloted by the first mate, Owen Chase, and one piloted by the second mate, Matthew Joy, and... On the island, they did what they could to scrounge up supplies. So they got fresh water, birds, they got a little bit of firewood, and they tied the birds down so they couldn't fly away, obviously. But the plan was to head for Easter Island. Unfortunately, though, a flurry of storms blew them too far off course from there. And so that was day 44 from the sinking of the the Essex. So they've been underway like a month and a half. I mean, not underway. They've been underway two and a half years at this point or something like that. But in these lifeboats for 38 days or so. And then I believe they were on Henderson Island for about a week before they decided they had filled up on birds of paradise and crabs and fish and all that shit. And they decided to hit the, hit, hit the road, hit the ocean about a week later. So leading up to this, like even before they found land a week ago, Matthew Joy was getting sick as hell. And it's it's really unclear what his sickness was, but he wasn't even in the best shape leaving Nantucket two years ago. This was a guy that was not in the best of health, and he kind of got second mate on some sort of nepotism, familial favoritism kind of thing and managed to do the best he could during the whole undertaking, but as it devolved into a complete survival situation, it became harder and harder for him to keep track of not only his own health, but the health of everyone he was the steward of in his own whaleboat. So January 10th, he was in real fucking bad shape. So this is, I think they left a little bit after Christmas. And he wanted to hang out with the Nantucketers because being second mate, he got stuck in the boat where they did the gym class, picking who we want in our boat. And obviously 
the first mate and the captain got first dibs. So it was just a product of the times that Matthew Joy ended up with most of the black members of the crew. And he didn't really feel quite at home with them as he did with all the people he had grown up learning about whales, learning about whaling, learning the ways of the sea. So he really wanted to spend his last hours on a boat with fellow Nantucketers. And so he was brought on and this dude Hendrix was put in charge of his boat. And it was actually, I know I said January 10th earlier, but kind of in in between Christmas and January 10th was a few days where he wanted to do this. He wanted to hang out on the boat with the other Nantucketers. But on January 10th, he knew that this was the day that he was going to fucking expire. And so he did something that I think is really brave and really cool, where even though he had been, you know, messed up, sick and diseased, and he wanted to die with his companions, patriots in the captain's boat with the Nantucketers, he decided that like if he was going to die, he was going to die with what was effectively his crew. He was the captain of the third whale boat, essentially. So he was brought back over to his boat and assumed command of it. And he thought that being there for his mini crew was more important than being with his Nantucketers. You got to respect that. But by the end of the day, January 10th, he had died. Whatever disease he had, had claimed them. And then you run into this interesting detail where they sewed him up in his clothes and like a little bit of extra sail that they had and dumped him into the water, tying him to a bunch of rocks, like cement shoes that you hear of in mob movies. Or And uh, looking that up, apparently the cement shoes thing was... Not nearly as common as it is believed to be. I think there might be one, like, positively recorded instance of somebody getting cement shoes and being thrown into the ocean. But whatever. He he got dumped into the ocean with rocks to weigh him down. And it's not really addressed in the book. But I'm like, why the fuck? Why the fuck are they carrying rocks? Like, why, why are they bringing the rocks around? But I don't know. They were dehydrated. They were hungry. So who knows? Maybe, you know, mentally not everyone's quite there. And I think later on the rocks are um, actually used to, like, cook, cook stuff. Yeah, stuff. <laughs> stuff in the sun. So you, you heat up the rock in the sun and it works as, like, a, a basic frying pan or whatever. Where It's the same kind of thing where if you're in New York City and someone says you can fry an egg on the sidewalk or what have you. But because of the lack of nourishment that Matthew Joy had as he was dying, as he lay there dying in his boat that he was the steward of, the consequence was that was that he had pretty much gone insane from the salt and the sun and the fever and the illness that he was suffering from. So being in charge of the whaleboat's rations was really not a smart thing for him to be in charge of. Because of the salt and sun and fever and everything, he had pretty much gone insane. He had pretty much, all his mental faculties had flown the coop at this point, and because he was the sole proprietor of the ship's, like, food... I keep saying ship, just ignore that. He was the sole proprietor of that whaleboat's rations. He was handing them out willy-nilly, and nobody really questioned it because everybody's starving. So what he thought, you know, what everyone thought was half an ounce of rations was actually way more than that so everyone on that boat had gone through almost all their rations they had another three days of rations after january 10th when he died where according to all their maps and mathematics and charting that they had done 
they had another 30 to 60 days to get to South America, and that was with a good headwind. Obviously, three days of rations is not going to cover that, and that's going to be a huge fucking problem, and a problem that is going to rear its head multiple times before the end of this episode. And next, they had a... Next, they had a storm that showed up, and there was lightning flashing all around, hitting the tallest waves. Everybody's panicking. But at the same time, everyone's quietly like, thank God, because this storm is blowing them closer to the way they want to go. So they'll deal with the rain and sleet and horrible conditions as long as it inches them closer to their final destination of South America. So skip ahead to day 52, and this is in Owen Chase's boat. So he's the he's the first mate, as we remember. And on this 52nd day from the sinking, his boat was leading the group, but at 11 p.m. he got separated from the others. And this proved to be basically the final breaking of the fellowship. Food was too scarce. Chase knew that what was Joy's boat and was now Henderson's boat, because he was just the next in command after um, Matthew Joy, he didn't have any food, and so he didn't even bother to waste the bullet to shoot up into the air to find the other boats. And it had been previously agreed on, I think I touched on this last episode, but it had been previously agreed on that if they got lost again, it was going to be every boat for itself. So Chase's boat got lost, and he made the judgment call to let the split happen. And apparently Henderson and Pollard's boat either agreed with this or weren't able to find him or whatever. But a few days later, Chase decided to cut rations in half again. And if you recall, they're already in half from the last episode, from what they originally set off with, because they thought everything was going to be closer than it actually was. So now everyone in Chase's boat was down to a quarter of the original rations, which was already a paltry sum. So they were down to one and a half ounces per day. I know that means a lot more to you stoners out there, but one and a half ounces of shitty hard bread per day is not going to cut it for me. Although maybe that might be a good way to get, you know, slim down to fit into my tux, whatever. That's what Chase's boat was doing at the time. And this was in stark contrast to the other boats. The other two boats, Pollard and the newly appointed Hendrix, had to split rations overall because Joy had given out all the rations for his boat. So they had to split the rations on Pollard's boat. And this was obviously, to everyone involved, not going to be enough. So you can see the seeds forming where everybody is already starving and they're just doubling down on that starvation. So if we jump back to Chase's boat on January 14th, Richard Peterson stole some of the extra food. He was one of the the black sailors, and the interesting thing about Richard Peterson is on Chase's boat, he was the one that really helped keep morale high. He was a soulful old black man, and he was just like, I'm so hungry, boss. And, um... Chase was just going to shoot him dead right then and there, but he smartly decided that that was not going to be good for morale because Richard Peterson's sea shanties and prayers and everything were really helping out keep the boat running. And he's like, if you ever touch my food again, you're getting a bullet between the eyes, but like, I'll let you off easy this once. And I think that was probably a smart thing to do. And over the next few days, Chase's boat suffered a number of cruel, random encounters of the sea. They were attacked by a shark 
So this giant great white shows up and literally starts taking bites out of the bone. Like it's it's Jaws 3D or whatever. So he's chomping down on the wood and everybody at this point has been on a quarter of the daily rations that they had been originally, which are probably a quarter of the rations that they needed to be a functional sailor. So they're probably operating at like one sixteenth of their usual strength. So even stabbing at them with the harpoons they had, stabbing at this big shark with the harpoons they had, they couldn't even pierce the skin. Eventually they managed to like knock it a bunch of times to fight it off, but there was a bite mark in the boat. And obviously, they didn't get any meat from the shark, which was devastating morale blow. Porpoises showed up the next day. The porpoises showed up the next day, and they were, like, jumping around the boat, bobbing their head into the the hull of the whaleboat. And then as soon as somebody would, get like, find the strength to get up and try and poke at them with a harpoon or something, they would just run off, swim off. And they were just far too agile for these people on Chase's boat that were just wasting away to absolutely nothing um all their muscles were atrophying and they couldn't even hit these porpoises with anything so it was just teasing them and as if that wasn't bad enough as far as teasing them went a few days later a pod of sperm whales came through and like splashed their tails around jumped up and breached near them so you can basically imagine that they're like haha fuck you and using their tails to splash water in everybody's faces and then they just took off so it's it's just like another one of those cruel ironies where they're out here hunting for these sperm these extremely lucrative sperm whales and where they were initially the predators of the ocean where they could hunt these things make a huge profit collect all the oil do all that now they're just completely helpless to the taunting and teasing of these whales Another day or so later, Richard Peterson, the, the, the guy who's keeping everybody praying, keeping everyone singing, and the one that stole the food, he's like, he's, he tells Chase that he's like, I'm not going to make it, Chief, and tell my wife that I love her if you ever make it home. And he, he, he dies on January 20th. And even as he lay there dying, they're like, do you want your rations as a comfort? And he's like, yeah, I do, but I'm not going to make it. And I stole rations earlier. And if these ones that I give up help even one of you live to see another day, then that is a sacrifice I will gladly make. And he, as peacefully as he can, given the circumstances, just closes his eyes and falls asleep and passes away just of starvation and stress and everything. But I think that is just a really incredible redemption arc going from stealing the food while everyone's asleep to being like look i'm not gonna have my last rations if it'll let somebody else lives and i think that he's especially noteworthy among this tale because of that i think it's truly stunning so that was january 20th on chase's boat and he he gets kind of the same treatments he gets sewn up and thrown into the sea because they hadn't got as desperate as they would later on so now we can jump back to Pollard and Hendrix's boat 
and they have managed to stay together since the split off from Chase's crew. So another black man on Hendrick's boat, Lawson Thomas, dies, and this is where shit gets real. In the famous parlance, that's where the cannibalism started. So obviously shit is real pretty much from the point they leave Nantucket. Like, whaling is not an easy profession by any stretch of the imagination. But here they are on the water, and Lawson Thomas expires, and that's when they discuss eating him. And here's where that irony from the last two episodes really comes home to roost. Instead of heading towards islands, and I I think I've reiterated this in both of the previous episodes, but instead of heading towards islands that might have cannibals, they actually had functional British colonies and a mission and the shipwreck crew of the bounty. So cannibals were really not a problem on any of the destinations they were headed to. They ended up becoming the cannibals themselves. So after what I imagine would be a horrible fucking debate, they set to work on poor Thomas. So in... In stories of cannibalism across history, especially in survival situations, what people do most often, and this isn't really recorded quite as well because obviously they're not fucking proud of it. This was the custom of the sea, you know, it's pretty much expected in some kind of survival shipwreck situation that this is what it comes to. Likely they would take off the hands and feet and head, anything that makes a corpse look human really anything that has distinguishing features really makes it fucking difficult i can't say that definitively i've never eaten somebody just just getting that out of the way right now but once they removed all the identifying features they they literally had to just butcher him they would cook it on one of those stones that they brought along which I guess answers my earlier question, why they brought the stone along, so they would rest the stone out in the beating sun with a salt lapping on it, and they cut out the heart and liver and all those tasty organs and cooked them up on this frying stone. And I I can't recall where I read this. I don't know if this was a factoid from the book or one of the references that the book um, references in the bibliography or whatever. But the average adult human, the average adult human male, contains about 66, 66 pounds of edible meat. But starving for that long, um, scientists estimated that it was closer to 30 pounds of sickly, gamey, sinewy meat. And Pollard and Hendrix's crew were basically at the end of their rations because Pollard's boat basically had to have their rations again because they were splitting with Hendrix's boat now because Joy had used up all their rations. So they pretty much eagerly consumed him. I don't think anyone was happy about it or proud or... (laughs) anything like that, but that was just the beginning. Skip ahead to January 23rd on Pollard and Hendrix's boats. This would be 66 days out from the sinking, so this is like a little over two months. Charles Shorter dies, who was also another black sailor. And this is something that comes up a lot in discussion with this story, because of the first six people to die... 
I think four of them were black, and I don't think any of the the black crew members survived the ordeal at all, except except the guy that ditched in South America. He had the right idea. And so there's there's different explanations for that, where the black crew members had a shittier diet just from their social standing. You know, they weren't getting fed as well, which sucks. But then there's also some physiological differences that he brings that Philbert brings up in the book that you know might contribute here which I thought was kind of interesting where black men have a higher muscle to fat ratio so the black crew members might have dissolved off all their fat first kind of interesting and that's that's the same reason physiologically why you see a lot of like Samoan and Pacific Islander men that are just huge because it's it's a physiological adaptation and obviously that doesn't apply in all cases but it's it's kind of the same reason that women in these situations often outlast men because women put on a lot of extra fat to their thighs whereas men don't really have that luxury where it goes more into muscle so like if you look at the donner party later on this which would be like i think 40 years later in california or something uh, most of the women actually ended up surviving because they were better adapted to survive starvation. And I, I think all those little differences make for a compelling story. But uh, women would outlast men in the starvation scenarios. So it was thick thighs literally saved lives. As Shorter dies, Charles Shorter dies, you can imagine that the exact same thing happens. He was used for me so the next day january 24th we'll jump back to chase's crew so they basically ran out of wind and they were only on an ounce and a half per day so they couldn't like row the boat everybody was basically doing the bare minimum they could to maintain any energy they had and chase knew that some of them were gonna die soon so he switched from being like the resident hard ass like he had been on the boat originally like busting everybody's ass all the time to just being the most encouraging ferociously optimistic person he could be and i think that that was a huge help i I think i talked about it last episode where you know you need somebody at the beginning that is going to be decisive and almost be a bully to make the hard decisions but as supplies dwindle and as personnel dwindle you need to adapt and be more democratic in a survival situation so everyone was basically just tenaciously clinging to life as much as they possibly could and that's what i like to think that i would be at i would i like to think that i would not be somebody that would give up and lie down no matter what the odds are but i mean i also wasn't laying out in a whaleboat for two months with uncertain prospects for survival but what's interesting is because they missed that wind and because they could barely you know row their boat they had to do the best they could and just take shifts and just do a little bit at a time but they they had to head north they were about 1800 miles from chile at this point and starvation makes you cold so they had gone south quite a ways <clears throat> but they were gonna freeze to death because of where they had drifted southward and if they managed to take shifts and go north 
they would get to warmer latitudes and it wasn't exactly the way they needed to go to get to shore. But if everybody freeze to death before they got to shore, it wouldn't do them any good. So they had to persevere and go north towards the equator, towards the tropics to get just slightly warmer. And so that's Anytime there was wind that they could use, they would optimize their ships going towards that. But for the most part, they were too weak to steer. So it's a miracle that they managed to accomplish that. And so that's where they were headed. They were headed as north as the conditions would allow. And if we jump four days later to January 27th, back on Pollard and Hendrick's boat, Isaiah Shepard died and he was eaten. And he was another one of the black sailors. The next day on Pollard's whaleboat, the only black member of his crew dies. And that is Samuel Reed. Again, he's eaten much in the same manner. And it is just a fucking hellacious, barbaric, evil practice. But it's like you, there's nothing else you can do in that kind of survival situation. Actually, there is, because I read this other tale. Tale's an interesting word. I read this other story that was um, about a similar situation where a boat was stranded out in the middle and one of the crew members died, and instead of eating him, they actually ripped off pieces of his flesh and used it as bait to catch fish, and then they ate the fish, which I guess is a more respectful way of doing it. And, you know, maybe you make out better overall if you have good fishing. But the area of the Pacific that they were in was, aside from the offshore ground, it was deep ocean, it was far from shore, most of the fish in the area would have been deep down, and I don't think the fishing would have been that successful. And I've, I've mentioned it before, like five minutes ago, but there's, there's a fucked up clickiness to this where four of the black crew members were eaten first. And I wouldn't be the first one to point out how this was kind of suspicious. And, and like I said earlier, there's the physiological differences, there's the diet differences, and just the general way that black crew members are treated so some historians think that maybe some of the crew might have murdered these other crew members because none of the black crew members lived to tell the tale i don't think that that's necessarily the case mostly because in philbrick's book and any of the extensive sources he references is there any mention of it but i i or not mention of it but any evidence of it but it's still you know something to think about so over the, the few days, they ate like three people. And this was a ton of calories to intake compared to what they had been taking in. There's like 3,000 calories per day, but none of the bodies had really any fat on them to actually make use of that nutritionally. So like you, you need the fat to burn to access the nutrition in the meat or whatever. I, I don't know. I, I may be a biologist, but I didn't go that deep into the biology of cannibalism. And we'll save that for another episode. Uh, later on, the next day, on January 29th, Pollard and Hendrick's boats separated. And unfortunately for Hendrick's boat, they were entirely without navigational aids. They were just free balling. Chase and Pollard's boats both had, you know, some charts, maybe a sextant or a telescope or whatever, some means to calculate their relative position and, you know, figure out even where they were a little bit. And Hendrick's his boat was pretty much entirely dependent on following Pollard's, but he couldn't keep up. They never found each other. 
and he was basically adrift without any way of telling where he was besides like free balling it against the backdrop of the stars and the sun and the winds and what's warm and what isn't and that would have been extremely difficult especially when they were too weak to even use the rudder to steer skip ahead another week later to february 6th in uh, pollard's boat so at this point pollard's boat has uh george pollard the captain charles ramsdell barzielli ray i still have no idea how to say that so barzelli barzielli whatever and owen coffin and what's interesting about owen coffin as i think i brought this up before but he was george pollard's first cousin and the other two charles ramsdell and barzillai ray were owen coffin's not cousins owen coffin's buddies so they were all young members of the crew that pollard had sworn to do his best to take care of and this is a week after they finished off any of the man meat that they had of any of the other crew members that died and charles ramsdell suggests drawing lots and what that means is it's just drawing straws whoever draws the shortest straw is killed and eaten he makes the ultimate sacrifice so that everyone else may live and that is just one of the brutal aspects of the law of the sea and so they do it i don't know if they they do little strips of sail or twine or what they draw lots and who is it but owen coffin george pollard's young cousin that he swore to protect that draws the shortest straw and so Pollard jumps up with his musket and he's like, I will kill anyone that touches you and starts waving his gun around. And Owen Coffin is just kind of like with a quiet confidence is like, I, I like this fate as much as any other. And my man had brass fucking balls. He was 15 years old and he just took it on the chin that he was going to get killed and eaten. And he told his cousin to stand down and that that's the law of the sea. That's how it, how the chips fell. So we got to play by it. (sighs) So they drew lots again from the short pieces of paper or sail or whatever they had. And they found that his best friend, Charles Ramsdell, had to be the one to dispatch him. So they all say a prayer or get ready however you do in a brutal situation like that and young owen coffin puts his head against the side of the boat charles ramsdell cocks the musket and then and then pretty much all that's said after that in the chapter is soon there was nothing left of owen coffin and so that is just fucking brutal unbelievably messed up so that's how things were going for george pollard's boat two days later in chase's boat one of the crew members a nantucketer by the name of isaac cole basically went insane he was rambling about god knows what speaking in tongues he was convulsing and going unconscious and then suddenly regaining conscious jumping up in the boat and continuing to ramble just turning into a complete lunatic and he's dead by midday and that's when chase's crew wrestled with and finally succumbed to the vile practice of cannibalism that the other crews went through 
it's described here because Chase and Nickerson both had records of their boat specifically. But they started eating the heart and the flesh from the arms and they were cautious about rationing the meat as best as they could. They stripped the rest of his flesh down soaked it in salt water to kind of get a saltiness to it and try to let it dry out on the frying stones that they had to make man beef jerky. (sighs) Good lord. It didn't really work though and the next day the man made jerky was a sickly green color so basically they cooked it on the stone fried it up and ate it asap to them it was better to eat him now than it would be and keep in mind this is the first time that chase's boat has had to deal with the cannibalism pollard and hendrix's boat had gone through this process four times at this point and so chase's boat thought it was much better to eat him who had died of natural causes rather than be forced to draw lots and deal with the same shit as they did with Owen Coffin. And that that was a pretty big discussion that they had too because he was jumping up and down. He was rambling incoherently. He had the spark of the devil in him. He had some kind of spark of madness. So like was, was his meat even safe to consume? None of them even knew, but that's just what they had to do. And a quick caveat for my listeners, if I'm ever on a plane with you guys and, you know, we go down in the Andes or whatever and I die in the plane crash, go ahead. Fuck, like, what am I going to do with the body? Just just go ahead, make man jerky out of my ass. Like, I promise I won't hold it against you in heaven or whatever. You know, I'm not going to give unconditional permission for me to be eaten. But generally, if I'm already dead, you know, what the fuck do I care? So we'll skip ahead to Pollard's boat on February 11th. This is three days later. And that is when Barzillai Ray dies. He was 19 years old. So at this point, Pollard and Ramsell are alone with his corpse and the bones of the others. They are just sitting there. Everybody's got a long beard and they're just breaking the bones, sucking out the marrow and bringing Pollard's got his musket close to his chest in case Ramsdell tries anything. And they're just sitting there amongst the bones. Skip ahead another three days to Chase's boat. And they finish eating Isaac Cole. The only ones left are Owen Chase, Thomas Nickerson, and Benjamin Lawrence. And this is day 80 fucking 5 from the sinking of the Essex. And at this point, Nickerson, who I believe at this point is 15 years old, wraps himself up in a sail only two days from land as best as their calculations go. And he just starts crying. He's like, I wish to die immediately. And he just lays there in the boat and has a meltdown and eventually steps out of it. But it's a big meltdown. And he leaves that out of his own narrative of um, the whole ordeal, which is kind of funny. Four days later on February 18th, Benjamin Lawrence sees a sail and he's sure that it's a mirage or that he's dead or something but no he's right he sees the sail and so the other two with benjamin lawrence um use pretty much the last of their strength to catch up to the ship indian out of london and they get yanked up on the boat none of them obviously can climb because they're just basically desiccated husks at this point and all they can squeak out all that Owen Chase can squeak out for explanation is just Essex whale ship Nantucket 
like I said, they needed help to even move up onto the ship. And what did they have to eat? But pounds and pounds of tapioca pudding. You know, I'm not crazy about tapioca pudding, but if I'm having pounds of it after I'm forced to eat one of my buddies, I'm I'm calling that the best meal I've ever had. So this was day 89, three months since the sinking. And the Indian, the boat that picked them up, started tugging along the whale boat. They were going to sell it in South America to start a rescue fund for the sailors to help them get back to Nantucket. But overnight, the, the sh- they lost the whale boat. The thing that they had been in for the last three months just got, the knot was too shitty and it just kind of cut loose. So if we skip ahead another five days to Pollard's crew, and you might notice that we haven't talked about Hendrick's boat for a while, and that's because nobody on Hendrick's boat really recorded what was going on after they split up. So on February 23rd, Pollard's boat, this is 12 days after Barzillai Ray died. So they're just sitting there covered in blood in their beards, sucking on bones, going on a 3,000-mile hell loop from South America out to the offshore ground and then doing their best to get back to South America. And the whale ship, the dolphin, finds them lying amongst the bones. And this is where we go back to that description on episode one with the gaunt, sunken eyes, leathery, torn skin, skeletal forms, blood-stained beards, clutching bones as if they were some vile cemetery ghoul. It's written that they refused to give up the bones even after they had been lifted up to safety. Because, for one, it's the only thing that they survived on the last two weeks. Two, it's all that's left of anyone in their crew. I think think each whale boat started with six or seven people, and only two of them survived on this boat. Just laying there amongst the bones, barely able to move, jealously coveting them, sticking the finger bones in their pockets so they could suck the marrow out of them later. Oh, it's so freaky. So Pollard recovers, presumably with pounds and pounds of tapioca pudding or whatever, um, whatever extra rations they had on the dolphin. And he tells them about the whale, about the offshore grounds, about the orcas attacking them about the island and this is where it's important because he tells them that he still has three crew members on Ducey Island that might still be alive and how they were surviving on spring water and crabs now two months out from leaving them and then pretty much everything that happened at this episode where you know they got split off from Chase they had to eat three or four fucking people they had to um you know, draw lots and kill his young cousin and eat him in what is called in um, in the heart of the sea an act of despicable gastronomical incest. Ugh. God, man, what a fucking ordeal, huh? He talks about how all the rest of them were consumed and everything like that. And they all got back to shore on South America. On March 17th, the survivors met up. So Pollard, Chase, Ramsdell, Thomas Nickerson, and Benjamin Lawrence all finally got back to shore and met up. And they were so happy to see each other that at least some of them made it. They swapped stories about how their individual journeys went and everything and... They're still brutally sad 
at what happened to everybody else. And at this point, everybody went home. Well, I mean, started the journey home to Nantucket, except Pollard. He was too weak at this point to go home and he needed time to rest. So he rested in a, uh, I think it was an army Navy hospital or something in some kind of encampment in South America and went home a week or so later on March 23rd. On March 10th, the Navy sent people over to Ducey Island where they thought the other three, and that was Chapel, Weeks, and Wright. They're the ones I talked about at the beginning of the episode that were the Koofs or the off-islanders from Nantucket that decided to stay on Henderson Island. Not Ducey Island where they thought they were and they sent rescuers. So they go around Ducey Island shooting off guns, circumnavigating the whole coast, trying to find people, and they don't find anything, and they're about to turn around. Luckily, the captain of the Navy boat, I don't actually have his name in my notes here, but it's not super important, but he surmised that they were close enough to Henderson Island, and obviously they didn't have the best navigational equipment, being they were in makeshift whale boats, that he went over to Henderson Island and made it there on April 9th. So they were still like almost a month off which is crazy. So Chapel Weeks and Wright spent four months on that little coral island. So obviously they found those desiccated skeletons of another shipwreck, which is horrible. What's even worse is the one freshwater spring that they found pretty much as soon as the rest of the crew left. That spring went under salt water and basically never dripped anything again. So they survived those months on what they had collected the water in that very first week and off of the blood of turtles fish and seabirds so it's just like they think they can survive easy they got plenty of food and stuff and then as soon as everybody leaves the water is just yeah you don't got any water no more good luck of the three chapel was the strongest so when the navy boats went around the island shooting off muskets or flares or whatever he dove into the water because the um for some reason they couldn't make it to shore i think it was like rough seas and there was the henderson island was a coral island so there was all kinds of shit that could break up against the boat but somehow after being malnourished for four months he managed to jump into the water and get to one of these rescue boats and they took him up on and they're gonna be like all right we'll take you back to the main boat and we'll see what we can do about your friends and he's like fuck that i'm not leaving them behind and there's nothing you can do to make me leave them behind refusing to abandon the other two he jumped into the water went back to the island and tied a rope to weeks and right one at a time to swim them back to these lifeboats it's like what the fuck just have one of the capable navy sailors do that exact thing and not the guy that has been starving and living on a half of a fucking seagull egg a day for four months that part of the whole story was so mind-boggling to me that they that they would allow him to be the one to swim over the reef to get his buddies but like big props to him i guess so they but they he did it and he got them he got his buddies out onto the lifeboat and they got back to shore and eventually made their way back to nantucket and survived so what happened to the third whalebone hendrix well, what I mentioned earlier, how we don't have any kind of first-hand account, you can kind of extrapolate that as being not a great sign. Months and months later, a ship found a heavily modified whaleboat with extra planks, 
choring up the gunwales to make it seaworthy with four gnawed skeletons aboard, washed up on an island pretty close to Henderson and Ducey Island, actually. And it really didn't take that long to put the four gnawed skeletons in the whale together and uh, make the conclusion that Hendrix's crew didn't quite make it, which is pretty sad. Yep. So going back to Nantucket, though, over this whole ordeal, they had basically only gotten letters from when they stopped in an island off the coast of Britain and then the southern coast of South America and then another point in South America. And then I think they probably got a letter saying, you know, the Essex didn't really show up where it was supposed to. uh, So we're not really sure what's happening there. So it really wasn't until the people started coming back that they got the whole story. At this point, Owen Chase had a 14-month-old daughter that had been born over the course of the adventure. Two months later, Pollard made it home, and it was kind of assumed that he was the captain, so he had more responsibility than anybody else for the dire, dire fate of his crew. So, like, the whole island of Nantucket showed up to watch him get off the Navy boat to go home, and then it was just everybody saw how fucked up he was and it was just like this giant crowd of people just felt completely silent nobody said a word and he just walked back to his home and that is just it just seems like such a poignant scene but after you know a day passes or whatever he's grilled by the financiers the people who owned the essex and expected a big fucking profit of whale oil but even worse he's grilled by a Owen Chase's mother, who had heard what happened, and who had personally been promised by Pollard that he would keep her son safe. So I just, like, I can't even imagine that. But he goes on, Pollard goes on to captain the ship, two brothers, along with Thomas Nickerson and Charles Ramsdell. And a few months later, that ship hit a reef and sank. And it wasn't as dire of a situation. Like, as soon as it happened, every the three of them started having all these crazy flashbacks, but they managed to get picked up pretty quick. And Pollard pretty much never stood step foot on a boat again after that. He became the night watchman on Nantucket, and every year he would lock himself up in his attic and fast for a whole day in remembrance of all of the you know, people that died of starvation and died of being eaten and died of whatever the fuck people died of. And he would do that every year until the day he died. So that was pretty much what became a Pollard. He tried to captain a ship and that sunk. And he's like, you know, I'm maybe not cut out for this. Cha- uh, Owen Chase actually did pretty well whaling. And he had two more kids with uh, his wife and then she died. And he ended up shacking up with Nancy Joy. Yes, that is that Joy. That is Matthew Joy's widow, who was... Matthew Joy was his friend, and obviously he didn't make it. And so they got married and had another kid. And it is Owen Chase that actually was the inspiration for Captain Ahab in Moby Dick. Because he, he went out and he he had this obsession, not like to the point that Ahab did, but he had this obsession of maybe harpooning the whale that had brought him and everyone he knew such misfortune. And you can see, they made a movie out of In the Heart of the Sea where Chris Hemsworth plays Owen Chase. And he probably does one of the worst 
Boston accents I have ever heard. And I don't even do a great one. And I, I was born in Somerville. But good lord, yeah, that movie was not great, not accurate. It's got some cool special effects, though, if you're looking more whale content. After he goes out again, he knocks up his buddy's wife, and she dies too. So he's got four kids. After that, he marries some chick named Chadwick. And this is where the epilogue of the book kind of starts to stretch out a little bit. It's like, do I really care about his one to his third wife after the events of the Essex? But whatever. His son, William Henry Chase, actually meets Herman Melville on a whaleboat. And bada bing, bada boom, he hears the story. He gets the secondhand account and eventually the firsthand account from Chase. And that is what inspires Moby Dick. 16 months into his last voyage, though, his third wife has another kid. Uh, and you don't really need to be an expert to check that math, where if you're out at sea for 16 months and your wife has a kid, it's not your kid, buddy. So that was hugely disappointing for him. So he divorces her, eventually gets a new wife, so he's on number four, and everyone else... In the story, Lawrence and Nickerson and Ramsdell and the three Koofs and the guy that ran off in South America kind of just keeps on trucking. Uh, this is decades ahead of the Donner Party later on in California. Moby Dick was a big flop when it first came out. Melville suffered dearly. I think he died in poverty, as many great authors do. And pretty soon after this, Nantucket lights on fire because they've got all this flammable whale oil going around, all this, um, they had a particularly dry season, and I don't know, a lantern went up or something, burned half the fucking island down, and right after that, there was the gold rush, a bunch of them left for new opportunities in California, and there was opportunities in California, you know, a lot of people made their fortune out there, not only was there the gold rush and other parts of the Industrial Revolution, but there was also the invention of kerosene, which I believe I went into a little bit of detail last week, last week, last month, whatever the fuck it was. And the invention of kerosene, obviously it's a lot easier to make and synthesize or get than it is going out on these three-year whaling expeditions to suck out the spermacity out of the sperm whale's head to have lanterns for a month. And that was the beginning of the end of the whaling industry, particularly in Nantucket. I guess it continues kind of to this day in Inuit communities. And if uh, Whale Wars or whatever, what was that show? I think it was Whale Wars where you had all these like fat dudes that were throwing stink bombs at Japanese whaling boats. I don't know how they actually did. But I think for the most part, whaling is illegal these days. But yeah. That, uh, that was pretty much the beginning of the end of whaling. And now if you go to Nantucket, it's a small little resort island. They've got a museum that has actually some actual relics from the Essex and the Essex crew. I think I mentioned one of the crew members was tying a little knot onto an end of the rope each day. So he had like 90 days of twine. I think that's there. And so it's generally just like a shitty rich person beach town where you can buy a trust me on local t-shirt and clamshell or whalebone fucking refrigerator magnet. Yeah, what was once the jewel of the pre-industrial revolution and whaling economy is now just like, you know, a nice little sea town. And oh my god, I can't believe that we finished it. <sighs> Deep breath. 
think that's a solid three hours or something of this story that's bigger than anything we've done on this show and i'm gonna get back into doing some smaller one-off things i've got a new book that i'm reading that i'm super excited about to get into and i would love to hear all your feedback on the series and everything like that i'll be back next week or the week after whatever ends up happening another reminder that after the after i get married to the lovely sarah i will have a lot more time and we will be doing weekly shows again but just right now it is not possible again i want to thank each and every one of you for coming along on this not just this crazy whaling journey but also just the whole journey of this show it means the world to me and uh it feels good to be back so i would say sweet dreams you all know it's only gonna be nightmares now